you are listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. chasers of light to the purveyors of pictures to all of you listening around the world this is the f11 photography podcast i'm your host kevin deal along with your other host mr brandon gory yeah, welcome to the best podcast in the world. Can we start saying that? Can we start? Saying uh, I that? think Joe Rogan might have something on us in terms of uh, listenership and sponsorship and all that. But uh, yeah. if you want to start going there, uh, knock yourself out, my friend. <laughs> welcome to the best photography podcast in the world, broadcasting live—not live—out of Austin, Texas. It feels good to say live, but we're not live. You checking out some film? I was looking at film prices last night. I was like, I did my like my my weekly or my monthly scour. I was just like, all right, let's check Cine Still for discounts. Let's check Midwest Photo for discounts, eBay and Amazon. I'm actually uh, having a bit of a possible, I don't want to say crisis. I think that's the the worst word for that. But I'm having a um, possibly a crossroads that I'm going through. So I have a Epson V600 flatbed scanner that I use for scanning my negatives. Mm. And I don't like how long it takes. And when we had Andy Famine here the other day, and by the way, if you haven't checked out that interview, we would actually have him in here. We had him call into the F11 hotline, but we had, we had Andy on the F11 hotline. He called in from Los Angeles and he was telling me that he uses his Sony and his 100 millimeter macro uh, to do film scanning. And of course, you know, you go down on those YouTube rabbit holes and sure enough, I go on that YouTube rabbit hole and you can scan an entire, um, Roll of 120 film in 60 seconds if you just use a 100 millimeter macro lens, and so that got me onto a. Uh, uh, I may I may yeah. be putting my yeah. I may be putting my Epson on on Facebook Marketplace soon. What are we gonna say? I was gonna say it's. I, I know where this is going, <laughs> and it's going in the direction of you're gonna scan your six by sevens and your your 120 format with your GFX. I may and get a fucking hundred megabyte file for your film. Uh, possibly. Well, I've been looking a negative supply mix, a kit that's a, it's not cheap. It's $699, but that's also, I could probably make most of that back by selling my flatbed scanner. Cause it, a lot of people like flatbed scanners. Uh, the Epson 600 for the, I've got a V550 and I'd be lucky to get 90 for that thing. Well, I'm I make a chunk of it back, but I also think about time I spend. It takes me about, 30 to 45 minutes to uh, scan 12 six by six images. I would just, I took a whole roll of um, Hasselblad shots the other day. And uh, yeah, so I had, I had four rolls and it took me two hours. Whereas with this, it can take me four minutes. And so I think about how much time in my day it's like, yeah, uh, maybe I can get $200 from my scanner. Now all of a sudden it becomes a $499 investment instead of a $699 not even, investment. Not even that. My my buddy here in Austin, he just grabbed a $20 uh, uh, LED and then his tripod. And then just, he got a used uh, 105 mil from eBay and like for about 150 bucks. 
Well, I think that's that's what I'm contemplating right now. But uh, we have a really awesome show today. We have a, a, an awesome guest from the United Kingdom uh, calling into the F11 hotline, uh, Chris Woodman. We'll get to that here in just a minute. But first, I want to talk about I want to talk about today's sponsor, and that is Gamut. Uh, Lutz lookup tables. Uh, some of you out there may find yourself in a situation where you're asked to do a job and you're stills photographer and they're like, well, we want you to shoot video too. And you're like a little intimidated, like, man, I don't really shoot video because the color grading is such a pain and don't really know what I'm doing. That is where Gamut steps in. Gamut is a company that makes uh, LUTs. They make base LUTs for your camera. So if you're a Sony, Canon, uh, pretty much everything but Fuji, unfortunately. Uh, thankfully, I also shoot Canon, but even Blackmagic and DJI, they have base LUTs for your system that will make the colors pop, but they also make uh, creative LUTs. And so they have a new product that's launching called Lux for you wedding photographers out there. And this Lux product is a very beautiful uh, wedding LUT, but they also make cinema LUTs. Uh, so some of my favorite LUTs that I saw were Kinetic, uh, Immersion, and Lotus, those are their uh, their commercial LUTs. And I think that those look fantastic. And their LUTs are only about $95, which if you think about it, it's like, man, I've got this really complex project and I'm trying to get all my colors right. Would you spend $95 one time for all your future projects to have a really awesome starting point on the colors? Hopefully you're going to say yes to that because especially if you're not a uh, professional cinematographer, videographer, and you're just kind of dabble in it like I do, hell yeah, I'm going to say yes to $95 to give me really good creative colors. But what's really awesome is if you check out the link in the description below, they're doing for your first purchase, they're giving you 15% off the LUT. So the LUT will not be $95. It'll be 15% off $95. So check out the link in the description below to get 15% off your copy of your LUT from Gamut today. Our guest today is an award-winning photographer who primarily focuses on portraiture with a slant on fine art nudes. Uh, joining us from Yeville, Somerset, in the United Kingdom on the F11 hotline, give a warm welcome for Chris Woodman. How you doing, man? Hi, Kevin. How are you doing? I'm good, cheers. And how do you pronounce the name of your town? Did I say it right? Um, it's Yeovil. Yeovil. I have to ask yeah. because, you know, I love you guys. I love, I love the English, except for the fact that oftentimes they can't even pronounce their own language correctly. So, like, anything that ends in B-U-R-Y is Brie. Uh, if, yeah. I, if, I ask an, if I ask an Englishman to pronounce the word D-E-R-B-Y, they'll say Darby. I'm like, there's no A in there. Y'all need to get your y'all need to get your own language correct. I'm just saying. <laughs> yeah, but the, but our language is made up of other people's languages. That's why <laughs> it's a it's a bastardization. They're like that works, and we'll we'll pronounce we'll we'll spell knife with a K at the beginning. Why not? So, uh, thank you for joining us today. Uh, we're mainly primarily going to talk about a lot of your monochrome fine art nude work because I think that's. Uh, in my opinion, your best work and maybe the most fascinating uh, thing that you do, even though you do a lot of different types of photography, especially within portraiture, you wear a lot of different hats. But I think we're probably going to focus more on that, not just necessarily the nudes, but just your monochrome work in general. So, But if you want to talk about anything else, there's nothing wrong with that either. So uh, I always start off every interview the exact same way, and you're no different. 
what got you into photography and tell us about your journey about how you got to where you are today. Well, my journey for photography, I suppose, um, started primarily as a kid because um, I grew up in the countryside and um, I was, was always had a camera in my hand. So I was doing sort of landscapes, wildlife. And as I got a bit older, I sort of progressed a bit more with different technologies. Um, so, yeah, obviously I started with film because I'm that old. Uh, um, but yeah, then when I sort of last sort of 10 years, I sort of started doing a little bit of portrait work and then, um, it progressed from there into being more sort of a lot more portrait work, uh, a bit of commercial work and, um, certainly the fine art nude, which she was referring to as well earlier. Yeah. So what drew, what draws you to the fine art nude and, uh, for people who are listening, because we have a, a lot of different types of photographers who listen to this pod, we do mainly focus on portraiture on this uh, pod because Brennan and I are both portrait photographers. Uh, but what got you into fine art nude photography? And for people who are listening uh, who maybe want to explore that, how do they even get into that, that genre? Because it feels like a bit of an icebreaker uh, could be a little awkward. Like, uh, so uh, you want to take your clothes off and do some shots? <laughs> like, how does one get into fine art nude photography? And what got you into it? Um, as a photographer, um, I suppose I've always had an interest in that because – my background is I sort of grew up in a naturist environment. So I'm used to people being naked. That is normal for me. Um, but then also I sort of, when I was younger, did a bit of life modeling. And now that I do portrait work, um, it seemed a good idea to take my photography down that line and use the artistic history from my past to promote body positivity so that's the basis for my fine art nudes is I will basically photograph anyone, regardless of age, gender, size, ethnicity, um, and try and promote that body positive message that everyone can be a model, they're beautiful, and from that point of view, I hope that message comes across in my work more than a lot of people tend to sort of see it as um, nudes is a sexual thing, whereas art nudes should not be sexual in any way. And I don't think any of my work ever comes across like that, which is, um, I'm hopefully a good thing. Uh, looking at your work, I don't really see any sexualization at all. And that is something that uh, you point out that I think is unique about your work because I do stumble across uh, – fine art nude photographers who they have a type and it's like, Oh yeah, I'm going to go with blonde women with very large chests and so on and so forth. And you're kind of like, yeah, I don't really think you're getting into this for the right reasons. Whereas you'll have people who are in their seventies, like married couples. Uh, and some of, I think your most authentic and beautiful work that you've ever done is of that particular couple that I'm referring to. I don't remember their names. I just know that you've referred to them in the past. And I always thought that the the work you've done with that couple is uh, just gorgeous. Yeah, I think I remember the couple you're talking about is um, Tim and Sally. And 
they're not actually a couple. Well, a couple, they, a couple of models. Yeah, they, yeah. They, 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 they yeah. photograph as a couple. My, my bad. They photograph as a couple. That's right. Yeah, and um, yeah. I mean, Tim, as a male model, he's just approaching sort of mid sixties, late early late, um, yeah, sort of mid sixties onwards. And um, Sally's a few years younger than that. Um, but yeah, when I first worked with Tim, that was sort of during COVID. Um, he was, he'd not done nude modeling before and he was looking for a photographer to do an art nude shoot with him. And I'm like, yeah, basically I'll do this because it's someone different and it promotes body positive again, my message. So I did the shoot with him and I remember putting the very first image I up on my Instagram feed and saying to Kate, my partner, um, this is basically going to tumbleweed because no one's going to like it. And <laughs> I have never had so many messages of positive support about any image ever. So that was um, a really nice thing. Actually even brought tears to my eyes. And there's a photographer not far from me. He spent his entire life being a press photographer and photo editor for newspapers. And he messaged me and he goes, um, it's really, really beautiful image. He said, very well done. And it's extremely difficult to do something well when you have nothing to copy. So coming from him, that was a really nice compliment. Absolutely. And yeah, the, the image that I'm specifically referring to, because you shot a whole set with this, uh, this, I, I should say model couple, not like actually like yeah. together couple, but, um, the, the image specifically I'm referring to, and I will uh, put links to these images in the description of this episode for listeners so they can follow along while they're, while they're uh, listening, is the one where her head is kind of on his knee and he's like comforting. It looks like he's comforting her and putting his, rubbing his, uh, his hand through her hair. Just a very authentic connection between two models and a really great capture by you. Thank you. Yes. Um, yeah, that one was literally... Um, one of the shots that I just love from that shoot. And uh, as a bit of a context for that, that is um, up top of what is known as the Cheddar Gorge here in Somerset. So um, the views out across, which are not actually in the image, are quite spectacular. I got I got I got yeah. I got to make a quick commentary because I just read this article the other day. I, this is total, I we sidetrack on this on this show and Brandon will get a question in here in a second, but something I got to I got to talk about because I just remembered it is in the Cheddar Gorge and Caves area, they found recently a 9,000-year-old person in one of the caves like frozen. And they did a DNA test on them and they are a descendant of somebody who's a retired school teacher who lives like a kilometer away from the cave. I thought that was interesting. No yeah. Yeah. I'll, I'll send you an article to it. I just had to, it has absolutely nothing to do with photography, but I was just like, <laughs> I was, I was doing some research on, on the area you live in and like that article popped up and I was like, Holy crap, that's insane. But anyway, you were going to say something about at the cheddar gorge and caves. I want to let you continue. Go ahead. Um, yeah, the views there are spectacular and, um, I've used that location for a couple of times. Um, you, you've seen some of the other images um, with a female model who's sat there in the rain as well. So um, I think it works well for that vulnerability element as well in the images that I very often take. 
So, um, yeah. Yeah, you you said and you mentioned that uh, the sexualization of the human body is not your uh, not your end goal, but rather body positivity and uh, the overall inclusiveness of all forms and and just you know uh, everyone in general. And it you know I, I love your work and I've been you know I'm looking at the same photo Kevin's looking at and I'm curious to know. Um, you know, because in nude photography, kind of like, you know, sexuality kind of is, is inherent um, in that sort of uh, sort of thing. I want, I'd like to know, if not sexuality is an end goal, um, how, do you, how do you come to uh, play with these motifs um, with your naked subjects? And as I'm also looking at the photo of the man with sunglasses on, um, lying nude on a tree with a pint, so I'm curious, what um, what what sort of drives the themes here? Um, yeah, that's a good question, and I think um, the themes basically fit the environment and the people. So um, I remember listening to a previous episode which you recorded, and Brandon, I remember you saying um, when you did nude photography is the best way is to pretend to be gay. Uh, <laughs> um, if you're photographing, if you're photographing male models, then that's not a good option to take. <laughs> um, yeah, <laughs> uh, but yeah, the one with the tree and the guy with the pint mag. Um, there's also an image with him. Got he's got a book as well. As well, um, is that was just um, using people in nature and just showing how. The human form can work with nature, be comfortable in nature, and we don't actually need clothes either to be in existence and not have any sexual meanings for them. So um, how do I actually come up with these? Yeah, it is just literally turn up on the site and see what works because um, everyone you shoot has a different comfort level. And yeah. I mean, I think Kevin referred to when we um, used to talk on Clubhouse about the guy on the tree. He goes, um, he's the most comfortable person in the world. <laughs> and and I think he basically is. Um, so that was a really good shoot as well. So, yeah, yeah. I, I couldn't help but notice. And I don't I don't know if you did this on purpose, but the, the angle that you shot him lounging on that tree, it looks like uh, it looks like the Guinness harp. Uh, yeah, I just sort of saw him sat there on that tree and I just worked, walked around and I want an image where you can see him and the environment. But then you don't focus on genitals and stuff. So therefore you've got to be careful on angles. And I think that's where I sort of probably differ because a lot of people, um, Kevin picked up on it earlier, is they pick a type usually young females, because that's an easy option to work with. Everyone likes that. For, it, gets for a lot of, it gets a lot of clicks. I got to say, though, yeah. on, on this shot, I love the book he's reading because he's got the top hat on, but he's reading a book that says how to look good naked. I love, the, I love your attention to detail there. Yeah, I bought that book purposely for that shoot. 
because um, <laughs> uh, over here in the UK, we had a television show um, presented by a guy called Gok Wan, and it was titled How to Look Good Naked. And that was the book it went with the show. And I just thought that would be a nice little play to work with and see who actually picks up on that. Um, you obviously did, and a few other people. And it's just nice to do little things like that to just sort of give people an interest in an image, make them stop, look beyond the initial, oh, they're naked. You are listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. Uh, when it is decided that someone is to be nude during a shoot, it should be kind of a checklist item, just like when you're doing a show where, uh, shoot where they're wearing clothes. It's just the one of the many decisions that are made. And if you treat it as such, then you're not drawing unwanted attention to it necessarily if you execute it properly and I definitely find that that's true with uh with your work so one of the uh one of the shots that I want to talk about is probably I would say top three to five of my favorite shots you've taken is the gentleman who is uh sitting on an, an abandoned building and you see sitting in a I guess a, a either a large window or door that's no longer there and it's a two-story and you, you do a profile shot of him nude, contemplating life or whatever. And, uh, man, as an environmental portrait photographer, I got to say, like, I hope you've made prints of this image, and I hope people have purchased them, because it's, it's an absolute banger, as you guys say in the UK. <laughs> um, yeah, so that would be a guy called Mark. Um, he approached me asking to do an art nude shoot, which is, to be fair, most of the people I've shot have approached me to do the shoots. And um, this is an environment, it's an abandoned milk factory, about two hours from me. And I've used it quite a few times. And yes, he is sat there in a big doorway. Um, and it's actually a three-story building, but I just didn't put the top um, floor in on that image because I didn't think it added anything extra to the image. And then I'm on a roof of an adjacent building shooting across the driveway at that one. So, um, yeah, I quite, I quite like that one simply because he is, like you said, sat there contemplating life. And there is a certain vulnerability. He's there right on the edge. And we all sort of get those times in our life where we're like, what are we doing? What's our way forward? And I thought that was one of those images that stood out for me as well from that shoot. Um, so, yeah, I like that one as well. Thank you. One theme I notice, and this is a theme that I do a lot in my photography as well, uh, just the only difference being is that the models tend to have clothes on, uh, is that you like to use juxtaposition a lot. And I'd imagine that living in uh, you know because in the united states we have <clears throat> we have old buildings but we don't have old buildings the way you have old buildings in the uk you have buildings that have lasted like centuries plural like you know you can go into a castle that's 600 years old or whatever and so uh i've noticed that you take advantage of your surroundings uh, much like a farmer uh, who makes a saison ale just takes whatever's laying around his farm and like turns it into a Saison beer, you know, you, you do the same with your environmental portraits. Uh, you really do uh, take advantage of uh, what 
your area has to offer you. But uh, what draws you to, you know, juxtaposition? Because you'll take a, a, a gorgeous, beautiful person nude and put them in like a, a, an abandoned prison, for instance, or you'll take them into like an old factory. And what draws you to that style of photography? Um, that's a really good question. I think um, for me, I find certainly art nudes in a studio boring. They're all the same. You're limited what you can do. Whereas if you can put someone in an environment, be that an old building or a prison, that automatically implies some sort of vulnerability. Um, but yet again, landscapes, putting them in a landscape is our natural environment. To be nude is to be natural. So I'm trying to make that sort of Two, there's two connections. One is you either natural in a natural environment, or if you're in some sort of abandoned building or prison, you have that vulnerability which most people can associate being nude with, because um, most people are not used to going around naked. So if they're naked, it's always like this sort of, oh, I can't, I can't be do this. People will see me, and so then when they see these images. They look at them and go, actually, this does work. It sort of hits a chord with them and pulls them in a bit more. Yeah, you you touched on um, your style of shooting, um, just you know, getting into the thick of it um, when you're there, while you, when you arrive on location with the model. And so I'm curious because um, some of your shots do look uh look like they have a little more planning a little more foresight especially with the the book you know how to look good naked and i'm just curious uh you know for those wondering especially in the audience like what what is your process uh going into these shoots like to what extent are you planning in terms of um, uh, posture props you know uh, the works um specific posies uh, no, I don't do, um, because as you'll probably notice, most, if not all, of my art nude is natural light, um, simply because I think that looks better than trying to sort of do it all with strobes and stuff. Um, so props and things, yes, I will sort of go through an idea, um, books, mugs, suitcases, hats, things like that. I would take those and occasionally if they work for an image or I think they're going to work, we would try it. Um, but specific shots, um, occasionally if I know the location really, really well, I will have something in mind. Um, but as a rule, I tend to sort of work with the people that I'm photographing and see their body shape, how comfortable they are, um, also what the weather and the lighting would give me at the same time. So I, I have to be sort of slightly dynamic on a shoot to get those images. And if you go there too rigid, you miss those beautiful shots if you go there with an open mind. Um, just going back to that sh shoot earlier, what Kevin was referring to with Tim and Sally, um, we had the location, but we had no shots in mind what we was going to do. And as a threesome, we turned up, we just walked around and we all came up with ideas for shots 
um, where we're going to shoot, how we're going to shoot it. So it's just so it's a team effort that is, and that's how I tend to like to work, get everyone involved on that, rather than just my thoughts. Yeah, and you know what? It's it's absolutely uh, breathtaking, and it, it's similar to how I approach my shots, especially in environments where the the backdrop, the scene, and the environment is uh, so compelling. You know, sometimes. I don't want to go in there with a plan because um, the backdrop is enough and it's sometimes it's easier to adapt in the moment than to go in with a plan and suddenly you're more rigid and, and um, you know, what you create isn't, uh, isn't necessarily the optimum of what you could have created. And so yeah. saying that, you know, um, I'd, I'd love to know, uh, such as the Milk Factory or, or uh, what was it, Cheddar Valley, um, do you do location scouting or is this, you know, obviously you've got a couple things, you know, in, in back pocket, a couple locations in back pocket, but, uh, are you ever exploring new locations? Is this like a, is this a Google map thing or is this just driving along the road on a new road and suddenly you see a, huh, okay, there's kind of, there's a shot over there that we could explore. Oh, oh yeah, always. Um, you see other people post images, whether it's people on Facebook have just posted a little snap of something or something on Instagram. And you're like, that's interesting. I might be able to use that. So you sort of Google Earth it. Or if, like you said, you're out driving and you're driving past and you think, well, that's, that's something that's interesting. I must bookmark that and come back. So, um, yes, always, always looking for new locations. But... Um, some of the locations, I mean, like the, the milk factory, I knew of the place. I'd seen a YouTube video of an explore someone had done with it. So I went there the first time to shoot, never having visited myself, but I had a rough idea of what was there because of one of these Urbex explorers had done a hour long video of it for me. So um, using resources like Google Earth, YouTube, uh, Facebook and that, you can always find plenty of new, well, I say plenty, there are a bit scarce old buildings like that, but uh, it's always nice to find new places and um, hopefully there's plenty more to explore at some point. Hey, this is Doss Miller and you're listening to the F11 Photography Podcast. Speaking of places you've used more than once, and that maybe this was the same shoot, maybe this was different shoots, but I noticed... Uh, I don't, I don't know if this is the milk factory or somewhere else, but uh, there's this shoot that you did. Uh, I believe one of the models you use commonly, uh, her name is Shannon. And then an yep. another one is Helen, uh, Helen Saunders. I'm looking at the picture right now. Okay. And there's like this yep. circular, very... Uh, yeah, there's this very circular, very symmetrical look. I can even see some frames of what appears to be a frame out of a floor. So it looks like you're you're straddled over two uh, beams and you're shooting down on this circular whatever this is. And then there's like two arrows that kind of perfectly frame the model and turns them into an arrow. But anyway, I see that you've taken more than one model to this place. Now, is it because they wanted to go there because they saw some you shoot somebody else there, or is it part of an ongoing project you wanted to try something different with the same with a different model? Tell me a little bit more about how you created this shot because you've done it twice: once fully monochrome and once with selective color, using the color red for uh, sort of a uh, 
a little uh, sheet or whatever, and that was with Shannon. But go ahead and tell the story about this and mm-hmm. tell us why you love this location so much. Yeah, so this is um, a location. It's actually, this one is an abandoned hotel. Um, I knew it as a working hotel about 15 years ago when it first when it closed. And um, I it was basically the only abandoned building that I knew of at the time. So I used it a few times, as you say, uh, three or four different models. Um, so that shot that you're referring to is they're lied on a round table, which is upside down. So the legs have all fallen off. So that's the tabletop. And yes, I'm then stood on the next floor up on the floor joist. Um, Vandals had been in and ripped up all the floorboards. So I'm there straddled across this big opening. It's about three foot wide, <laughs> holding my camera, looking down over them, hoping that I don't fall down uh, to get that shot. So it's a, it's a really nice shot, um, unusual angle. So I like that one. Do you... Uh... So something we talked about in one of our episodes, being an environmental portrait photographer myself and Brandon being an environmental portrait photographer as well, um, do you ever find yourself like having a primary, a secondary, and like a tertiary goal? And then when you feel like you've met your two objectives, you might try something a little bit more experimental as far as trying a new lighting technique or maybe trying a crazy pose or something like that. And then, uh, you know, maybe, maybe you fail at it, but you put it in the back of your mind of, okay, well, since this was like a tertiary goal of this shoot, uh, I'll, I'll take a different model here later because I didn't quite achieve it. Uh, but I have this idea now that I tried something here and I'll come back to this location later with a different model and see if I can make it better. And since it was such an afterthought for that shoot, the, the model that you were shooting, isn't going to be all bummed out that you didn't send them all your bad outtakes. Right. But uh, do you, do you do that? Do you make those mental notes of, okay, it didn't work for this shoot, but I'm going to take a different model there next time and execute. Do you do stuff like that? Oh yes, you have to. I mean, cause, um, some models suit different parts of a location better than another and you you're there on the day and you see something and you just suggest it to a model try this try that and you look at the images afterwards and you're sort of like it didn't quite make the cut for, for whatever reason maybe you needed um, a slightly curvier model to go against this juxtaposition of the square edges of um, whatever it is they're stood against um, so you go back with a different model, um, and sometimes that will work with a different model. Sometimes it doesn't, and you just then realise there is no shot here. Um, but then very often you'll go back, try it again, and you'll try something slightly different because you learn from that. So every time you go to a same location, you see different things with different people, and some. Some, some some things will work, some things won't. It's um, an individualistic thing. Um, the lighting on the day will change, and you'll see something different, which may or may not work. Uh, but yeah, it's always, always a learning curve when you keep returning to a same location. Um, and you see stuff, you think, I do need a different model to do this. Um, there's one uh in in the in the factory there's a guy picture there of mark in a big pipe 
Um, the first time I went to that factory, I saw the pipe, I saw the light in the pipe, but the model I had with me, I knew wouldn't work for that particular shot, so I didn't try it. But when I went back with Mark, I got him in that pipe, and the light shining through that pipe worked brilliantly for him. So, um, yeah, always, always have things in your mind, what will work for, the, for a turn shoot. Yeah, and and it's always it, yeah, it's always the testing of of different things, and you know it's funny you say that, um, and I know what you're talking about. Uh, there's there's one place that I like to go shoot. It's it's not really an open field. It's more like a forest clearing. They're they're going to build something on it eventually, but um, it starts out in the winter, and, and in the winter everything dies on it, and it becomes just really this this giant amalgamation of red soil and tree stumps and whatnot and little estuaries get carved in there as the rain falls and then during the spring it becomes a little grassy you know it's it's uh it's just you know bizarre grassy and red and then over the summer the the grass is tall grass and it's it's up to your knees and it's a completely different environment so i'm i shoot there maybe once a year and it's always a different uh it's always a different experience with different models and some models can hack it, some can't, and it's always uh, it's always mental gymnastics trying to shoot that location, uh, just because unless uh, you know unless you location scout it, but um, that does take time out of the day. Um, but I did want to move over to the gear question. Um, obviously, this isn't super important for um, you know making work. This isn't going to make or break a lot of photographers' work and. Um, a lot of competent photographers, uh, such as yourself, would be able to execute these shots probably with any camera system, given, um, given a, you know, a good 30 seconds to learn it. Uh, but I'd like to know what you shoot on and how it works for you and why you do so. Yeah, I don't think the gear is important for, for the most part. Um, I mean, occasionally I will shoot film um so harking back to the early days um but i shoot with a canon r5 like kevin does um so that's my main workhorse um i like it purely because of the autofocus um and it's quick but i've recently bought a fuji gfx medium format um and i actually did an art new shoot with that a few weeks ago with a male model that I'd never worked with. And the difference between that and the R5 is is huge. Um, I like the, the Amici's out of the GFX. Um, they don't require a lot of work done to them. So that's something I think I may use more for the art nudes going forward. I think it's, I think um, it was made for your art nudes, to be honest, like monochrome, that, you know, pulling the dynamic range out of that cloudy southwestern UK sky and it's just, you know, overcast and just you want to get that kind of beautiful, just kind of high contrast look. I think the GFX was like made for your photography, but that's just me. No, I remember when you bought yours, um, the very first shoot you done, you sent me some raw files from it and I stuck them in Lightroom and I was like, fuck me, these are brilliant. They don't need nothing to do to them. <laughs> and um, it's like, yeah, I always wanted one. And 
um, I had to make up my mind what I went for. Um, I don't need the GFX 100 like you've got. So I went for the 50S, uh, 50 megapixels is big enough. Well, for the, the files are actually still twice the size of the R5. <laughs> for, for the record, um, Chris, I don't need the 100. I wanted the 100. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I, I yeah, could get by got, just fine with the you, 50. You're a gas, aren't you? It was gas, 100%. And uh, yeah. so when you edited your first file on there, did it kind of blow your mind to learn that black isn't really black, that there's like another layer of black that a GFX file has that your R5 didn't have? Um, yes, certainly. Um, the GFX file black is more like coal black, whereas um, the R5 black is just sort of like a black piece of paper. And it's like, oh, there's about another 50 shades of black in between. Yes. So, yeah. Yes, it's, it's, that, it's that experience of editing a GFX file, and you're just like, holy shit. Like, I didn't know I could do this. Yeah. Um, but the other brilliant thing is actually the GFX files don't really need editing. They come out of the camera, and it's like, oh, shit. Yeah, well, that's, um, that's why I made the investment in the first place. Like, I'm not a preset guy. Like, I don't like, but the reason I'm not a preset guy is because when I put a preset on my R5 file, it tends to not look great. And I have to go in and do a bunch of post production. And that's, that's what that tool is good at because oftentimes when I go shoot with the R5, it's for commercial work. And when I shoot commercial work, it's somebody else's vision and it's somebody else's visual aesthetic that I'm trying to create. So I need that starting point of, okay, I shoot in raw, I'll go in, I'll tweak the colors based off their visual aesthetic, their brand needs or whatever. Whereas when I shoot on Fuji, both GFX and the X-H2 is I shoot for myself. And so shooting for myself, I want to get everything as right at the camera as possible because I know, I already have like envisioned what I want this to turn out as. Like I know where I'm going with it. Whereas when I'm shooting for somebody else, they're going to have all these opinions and post-production about, no, go back and do it this way or do that that way. And so that's to me, the appeal of shooting on Fuji, especially the GFX is, I mean, I can shoot on classic negative and I can shoot, uh, on, uh, like Eterna, like a lot. I, I just love both of those, uh, uh, both of those. Now we'll say, I'm not a huge fan of Acros. Uh, there's just some something that's a little too flat about it, so I still use my own uh, base uh, edit preset that I made uh, that is more of a noir feel because that's just like how I'm shooting my black and white lately. But yeah, I mean, just shooting on that GFX is just like uh, I, I mean, it's not good for your hard drive because it takes up a lot of space, but it also does it also does kind of encourage you to take less shots. Not only because the autofocus on it is slow as molasses, but uh, it's also just uh, you know you, you, when you nail on it, it's like yeah, I know I got the shot. It's a hundred megapixel file. I can see everything. I know I got this shot. I know everything's in focus. I know I nailed the colors. Don't you agree? Yeah, I certainly agree. Um, the R five for me is my workhorse it does the commercial work all the stuff where i need to capture movement um because of that autofocus is like shit hot in tracking eyes and stuff um but i will agree with you the colors on it do need more work um so yeah i got a bunch of presets that get me sort of like 90 percent of the way there then i have to tweak every image to get them how they're supposed to look whereas the gfx if you use one of the film sims um Certainly, I mean, I've used Acros before with one of the 
filters, sort of maybe the red one or the green one sometimes. Um, but then I have that created as my own preset to just push the blacks a little bit blacker and lift the highlights a bit more as well to give it that bit more contrast. Because like you said, the across is a little bit flat. And that's I agree with that. Um, but yeah, the autofocus on the GFX is absolutely shit. Yes. <laughs> um, yes. So, I, I actually so shoot... I'm treating it like a film camera. Yeah, I shoot, um, I shoot manual. I shoot manual focus in the studio with it because I'm faster than the autofocus is. And, yeah. and since you're yeah, shooting I an mean, F8, F11 in the studio most of the time anyway, like you're going to nail focus. Like you don't have to worry about slightly over or under correcting your depth of field. It's it's going to, it's going to nail. Exactly. And you grew up with film as well. So you're like me used to manual focus and you're also used to that slower process of shooting film. So you treat the GFX like a film camera, basically. Yeah. Have you, have you purchased any GF lenses or are you still uh, adapting Canon lenses to it? Um, I'm still using the um, EF lenses at the moment. So my Sigma Art um, 50 and 85 work brilliantly on it. Um, even the autofocus and then the Canon EF 135 F2 L, that looks really good on it as well. Um, the autofocus on that one's slightly slower if I use it in autofocus mode. But um, at the moment, I'm looking at some dedicated GFX lenses, but I'm not sure which focus length i like at the moment i would i would personally like just because it's on rebate i would pull the trigger on that quote-unquote kit lens because you know if you yeah. stop down to f8 and you know just throw it into like auto iso even if that gfx in that you know dark uk uh environment and monochrome if it shoots at like uh you know whatever 20 2400 iso or something like that 2400 iso on that camera looks like 640 on a R5 or something like it's it doesn't look the same and and the the, the quote-unquote noise more emulates grain structure of film like if you zoom in on the files it's more circular and and less colorful than than a lot of noise that you see on other cameras but just to something to keep in mind don't don't let the um the darker aperture especially with you being an environmental portrait photographer wanting to get everything sharp you know, you, you shoot at a shallow depth of field sometimes, but I think I think if you got like that that kit lens, then you got something like uh, down the road the one ten or the the eighty, you'd be fine. I mean, you could you could get by with just those two lenses for the most part. Yeah, um, I've noticed that. I I'm not afraid of noise. Um, in high ISOs, I mean, even on my R five, I'll push that it to ten thousand ISO, um, and the little bit of noise that you get on it. It's only noticeable if you pixel peep, normal work, no one notices it. Um, and certainly for mono, you treat it just like it's a bit of film grain. So I think people who sort of, certainly on the forums online, you sort of say, oh, but you've got noise at 6,000 ISO or whatever. They're talking bollocks because no one actually really gives a shit. Um, but yeah, I've noticed that with the GFX, the noise levels are not comparable and yeah the depth of field on it as well just open up the lens and just shoot and um just go for it hi i'm jordan groby and you're listening to the f11 photography podcast i'm gonna ask another gear question because i'm in the gear kind of mood right now um we, we've talked about your cameras we've talked about your systems and uh it, it sounds like um 
in this love triangle that we have here, I'm going to have to switch cameras because you guys have identical cameras <laughs> and I'm running with a Nikon Z6. So uh, it's uh, plus, I think if you're a Nikon shooter, you're just the black sheep in any case. But that all being said, I'd like to ask if you had to choose a single lens to carry out your work for the next year, just one lens, um, either, either, you know, the, the Sony or the Canon, um, which would you choose? Fuji. Fuji. Oh yeah. Sorry. I, I, I thought EF was Sony for a second. My bad. But yeah, which, which lens, which focal length and aperture would you choose? Um, I suppose most of the work I do with the Canon is always with the um, Sigma R 85 1.4. Uh, I just love that focal length. So I guess that would be my lens of choice. And I adapt that one onto the Fuji GFX. So on the GFX, that becomes like a 63, 1.1. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, so shooting at that shallow depth of field with that shit autofocus is not a good idea. Um, but yeah, I think the 85 is my favorite focal length. Wow, yeah. And that's that's a calorie burner too. That's, uh, you know, that's... Let's walk up to the model, put them in their, you know, help help them find the, the, the place that they're going to be for their posture and then just be like, all right, I'm going to take a quick jog over here. And if you need me, I'll just jog right back over and do, repeat that process for the next uh, couple hours or so. So that's brilliant. Yeah. Mind you, I have shot at the um, models with the uh, 70 to 200, 28, and I have shot that at 28 quite often as well. <laughs> Jeez. as an environmental portrait simply because i love the compression oh yeah that's right you helped me out with my review of that lens uh because i i borrowed the lens from my sponsor the 70 to 200 2.8 the rf and i wanted to do the comparison to the tamron and i'd already returned my 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 canon and i was like well i don't know if they're gonna let me borrow both lenses at once and then i realized that you used to own the tamron so you just gave me two files to review which is great but uh, you took that that really badass looking guy that picture of that guy kind of looks like uh what's his name tom hardy from the batman movies and everything bane uh really cool shot but i mean your your 70 to 200 work is awesome uh and that 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 shot in particular stood out to me but one thing i have noticed and you may start picking up on this i know you're really new to your gfx is that my favorite focal length changes depending on the format i shoot in so when I shoot on my R5, if I'm doing portraiture, I favor that 85 look. I love that 85 look, but it goes to whatever it is, 67 millimeters when you, or 67 millimeter, like, uh, you know, aspect, so to speak, when you put it on a medium format. And I actually find that when I shoot medium format, I tend to favor a normal field of view more. I'm, you know, the 50 millimeter equivalent, which uh, if you shoot on Fuji GFX is 63 millimeters. And I've just noticed that like, that's something that's changing uh, depending on the camera I shoot on. But, uh, you know, I don't know if you noticed it yet, but just, just pointing that out, you may find yourself favoring different focal lengths based off of whatever camera you're shooting on. Yeah, I think I am actually beginning to sort of um, favor slightly shorter focal lengths for the GFX. Um, I don't know why, whether it's simply because you can get away with doing that shorter focal length and still have that beautiful shallow depth of field if you need it um or whether it's that larger sensor just creates that different look maybe it's the um aspect ratio 
I don't know, but I have noticed I am sort of preferring a slightly shorter focal length on that camera. Well, as as we discussed, uh, when you do shoot medium format, you get that shallower depth of field. But another thing to keep in mind about medium format is, you know, we measure everything in f-stops at the lens, but we measure things in t-stops at the the sensor. Or if you're shooting in film, uh, you you measure it at the emulsion. And because the sensor is so much larger, it's like, you know, whatever it is, 60, 60 something percent larger than a full frame, you actually gather more T-stops at the sensor. And I think that's one of the reasons why noise isn't as apparent. And uh, it's also why, you know, you shouldn't freak out when you're like, well, that lens only goes to F4 for maximum uh, aperture. It's like, well, a medium format, that's not that big of a deal. Not even, not only in terms of depth of field, but in terms of light transmission and light gathering abilities because you are gathering more at that enormously large sensor now we'll give you one final warning before we change the subject and move away from gear which is that gfx sensor loves dust so if you haven't already purchased a, a kit for it uh to clean the sensor uh get it and there are very 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 specific instructions that you need to do to clean the sensor i'll link you up to the video if you haven't already seen it and we'll do it offline but it don't destroy your very expensive sensor. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> yeah, I, I do have the blower in the brush um, for it already because uh, that's one thing I hate with Fuji. Um, I don't know if Nikon do it, but Canon actually do have a nice little shutter. As soon as you take the lens off, the sensor's protected. Uh, Fuji don't. And that bloody great sensor on the GFX is literally going to be a dust magnet, like you said. Quite, um, question. So obviously, I, always turn the camera off before you change the lens so it doesn't attract quite so much dust. Have you ever cleaned your sensor on your R5? No, never. Exactly. I've never. Oh, okay. I've had my R5 for two years, and finally, during a studio session last week, I finally got a piece of dust in there, and I just blew it off with a blower real quick. Only time I've ever had to service my sensor ever in the history of owning that camera. So, yeah, I would love to see other manufacturers get on board with that. And we, we had that conversation yeah. with uh, Vanessa Joy about Canon, uh, you know, like but with other manufacturers. She was like, wait, other manufacturers don't do that, too? I was like, no, it seems so obvious. So I'm wondering, I'm wondering, Chris, if Canon may have a patent on that, which is why nobody else has attempted to do it. I, I thought Nikon or Sony had it in some of their cameras, but they do it kind of differently than Canon. But I'm assuming because yeah. Canon is actually um, – one of the most patented companies in the in the world like like they have the most patents out there over any company I and mean, they have they have just stupid lens ideas that that'll never see the light of day but they own the patent just in case they decide to unearth it and pull the trigger on it so uh i want to yeah. i want to shift gears real quick though i want to talk a little bit about you know you to me, your most powerful work tends to be in monochrome. And and by the way, you also have shots that you've taken of people with clothing on in monochrome to me that are powerful. So like one, one kind of, I, I don't know if I'd necessarily call it a series, but it's something that you seem to do, something you seem to play on. So like uh, the gentleman with the top hat and the round glasses and the three-piece suit, uh, the convict, because I, I can see that he's dressed uh, old-fashioned like... But uh, it seems that you, you you tend to like favor more old old time looking stuff when you do shoot in monochrome. And I guess too, my question is, what is it about monochrome that attracts you to it so much? Besides the fact that sometimes you screw up, you can't get your white balance uh, figured out, and you just throw it into <laughs> throw it into mono. Um, yeah, funny you point pick that up on. But um, no, if I shoot an image that you see in mono. 
it's always been intended to be mono. Um, it's not like one where I've just gone, ah, shit, the white balance is all over the place or killed the highlights. Um, no, the images that are shot in mono are intended to be mono pretty much. Um, so for me, the mono images always have this timeless feel. So I guess that's probably why they look slightly old because black and white was always the initial format for photography from the early beginnings and colors obviously a modern um, incarnation of photography uh, so if the monos looked too modern then they lose that time this feel for me that makes sense that makes sense um speaking of mono so i i know i hear i hear the brits complain that it's always raining that the weather's uh always bad and so on and so forth and that it's shit but honestly i am jealous of the weather that you all get there in the uk because i love that diffused cloudy day look and uh, uh we're going uh here in texas on like our 120th straight day of like no sustained rain so uh, I just got to say, uh, you know, I, I totally understand that it's probably a celebration when the sun comes out there, but uh, I am just letting you know that we are quite jealous of your, uh, of your weather as photographers, with who, as people who love diffused light. Yeah, I love the diffused light. Um, it's nature's softbox, uh, no harsh shadows. Um, yet people do complain over here about the weather it's like well it's raining or it's too sunny and um yes i've got shots um one of my instagram ones that went up yesterday was a lady in a orange dress uh that was shot full sun behind just off to the right of the model or my right side and there was no way i could get that shot and put her in some sort of natural shade. So I actually had to just work with the harsh light. And I think that image came out really, really well. Um, but again, when we got rain, you just work with the rain. Most cameras, if you've got a pro level camera, are weather sealed. So like my Canon R5, I, I have no problems taking that out in a rain um, using it. Um, so I did a shoot, um, what was it, just over a year ago now with a model. She's a five times Paralympic gold medalist. And we did an art new shoot up top with Cheddar Gorge there. And it is pouring down with rain. But the rain adds atmosphere to that image. It's a different dynamic than the image we were talking about at the beginning of the show with the couple, because that was taken on one of those sort of slightly overcast days. So it's just learning to work and embrace our weather. Um, so I do actually feel your pain of actually having all that sunshine. Although when we don't need to actually do anything, it would be nice to have some sunshine so we could actually just sit on the garden with a few beers or something. <laughs> we, we just we just need to average out each other's weather. You, get, you can get more golden hour and we can get more diffused light. Uh, but I do want to talk about that shot in the rain. Uh, with that model is the you know the nude shot she's sitting there with her hand in there over her, in her hair and she's like crossing her right leg over her left leg she's kind of facing away from the camera it's a shot kind of over the shoulder and the rain is coming down definitely putting this in my top three favorite chris woodman shots what's the story behind that um 
So this is a model, but she she wasn't actually much of a model when she contacted me. So um, this is Rihanna. She's a, like I said just earlier, she's a five times Paralympic gold medalist. And she'd never done an art nude shoot. Um, so she messaged me after seeing a lot of my work and said, um, could we do a shoot? And I said, yes, how about this is a location? Um, was not expecting it to rain. Uh, the day before we did the shoot, um, I looked at the forecast and I thought, okay, are we actually going to go ahead with this? Because the forecast really is not looking great. And this is one hell of an exposed location. Um, but she said, no, it's absolutely fine. So she drove nearly three hours to get to do this shoot with me. Um, and fair play to her. I can see why she is a gold medalist because her determination <laughs> to just get somewhere and follow something through is obviously how she became a Paralympic gold medalist. Um, but yeah, this shot, um, I just sort of got her to sat, sit down and look at the views. And there was something about the angle that I picked for taking that shot. It's um, coming up from behind her, sort of just slightly off side profile shot and the rain reflecting in the light i just thought added real drama and atmosphere to this shot which if i would actually shot this on a bright sunny day would not have the same uh, feelings and emotions with it so for my me the weather there played a huge huge part in making that shoot work despite the difficulties the rain actually um, posed my guess is about one one twenty fifth of a second. I'm just looking at the rain, so I'm, I'm, I might have been way off. It's, it's not frozen. She's she's frozen, but the rain's not frozen. So I'm assuming <laughs> it's somewhere in that one one twenty fifth. But hey, just a note, real quick, uh, you talked about your cannon and taking your cannon out into the rain. I've taken my R five out into the rain so many times. But the one thing I will absolutely advise you against doing it, despite the fact that they say it's weather sealed, be careful taking your Fuji out in the rain. Uh, I took my XH two. Out in the rain with the Tamron. Oh, I saw that, yeah. Yes. Turn into a paperweight. Uh, I took it out on one shoot in rain, roughly about what you have in this picture that you took of this uh, beautiful model. And it, I had to send my camera in. I didn't have it for a month. So it was covered under warranty. I just played dumb. I was like, yeah, it just stopped working. And they had to like, replace the motherboard, which is like a $1,200 repair normally. So just yeah. just giving you a heads up on that with your GFX. I know you, like to shoot, you were talking about using it for your fine art nudes and then you shoot environmental portraits and all that. Just... Maybe, maybe get one of those little covers for it. But on the subject of nudity, your Instagram, I want you to tell me how many times your Instagram has been banned or temporarily shut down because of nudity. And I want you to, I want you to, I want your uh, unfiltered thoughts on censorship and how it pertains to nudity. Go ahead. Um, well, I've actually been lucky. Instagram has not actually stopped me from using my account <laughs> um, i think i've just been lucky in not posting nude after nude after nude so when they pick one up they they used to flag it up and they just take it away and just say if you keep doing this we will suspend your account um, so yeah the flag was always there on my account so i just post some of my fashion work just till the flag disappeared or i thought it was safe um, <laughs> uh, so Instagram, they really, really fucking pissed me off with the nudity because um, 
they always pick on art nudes, but you see the trashy porn stuff and they don't do nothing about that. Um, so I'm actually beginning to play Instagram at their own game by having a secondary account to post my art nudes from and invite my main account as the collaborator. So the secondary account will get hit, if it ever does get hit again, um, with the warnings, whereas my main account then will be unaffected um, because I've noticed Instagram now don't seem to take images down. They just flag them and just say, we cannot promote your work to non-followers, which is absolute bullshit. Uh, so, um, yeah, it's just working with their rules. Um, I don't understand Meta's policy. I can appeal decisions for images they take down. Um, and they just go, no, sorry, it doesn't comply. And I'm like, what the fuck? There's absolutely nothing here. It's a side profile of a bloke sat in a piece of grass on a beach. And that image is actually on my Instagram feed now, which I took last summer. Um, yeah, it's flagged. They just said we can't promote it. Um, and I don't understand why, because you see nothing. You know, if you put that man in a cheetah print swimsuit, gave him a mojito, and had him pose in front of a, a Ferrari, you'd be fine. <laughs> <laughs> it wouldn't have been a single issue. <laughs> Unfortunately, Chris Chris probably has a big old problem with that though, because it's trashy as fuck. <laughs> But that's got to. That's still got to be frustrating, or as you all say, frustrating, because you guys put emphasis on different, uh, <laughs> different vowels. <laughs> yeah, it's very frustrating for us. Yeah, that's uh, that's awesome, man. Well, um, we could talk to you for hours and hours and hours, but we're probably going to have to wrap this uh, wrap this up. But I want you to talk about uh, what do you have going on right now, and is there anything that you want to plug on this show? Um, so I got a couple of projects um, that we're going to do. Uh, one of them is a commercial fashion shoot um, with a model that I work with um, called Ed. So we do, we've done quite a few um, branded shoots for our fashion work, which is um, nice. And we get that sort of published, and that's quite good. Uh, I've just organized a shoot today with a lady who does um, fire breathing uh, so that's one that I'm going to shoot in a couple of weeks' time, with luck. Um, but yeah, uh, it's always nice if people sort of check out my um, website, chriswoodmanphotography.com, and then all my other links are there. Um, maybe just give me a follow on Instagram. Um, the loves, comments are always appreciated, and um, hopefully one day we can have a nice big following, sort of like um, Spencer Tunic, with my art nudes because he can post art nudes and Instagram leaves him alone. So I'm hoping one day if I had a following as big as his, Instagram would just go, shit, we best not mess with Chris Woodman. But uh, <laughs> I don't think that will happen. But um, we can always hope. Maybe one day. I do have one final question before we leave. I, I, I kind of made a two or three part question and, and you answered a couple parts and then I probably took you off on a tangent because that's what I do. If somebody is listening to this pod and they are like, hey, I want to get into fine art nude photography. I'm not a creepy person. I just want to document the human form. 
Uh, give some advice to that person as to how they can go about doing it in a very professional way and ways that the uh, resources they could utilize to get into that sort of photography. Um, I think first thing is find someone they can work with who's comfortable taking their clothes off in front of them. Um, most likely it's not going to be a friend, uh, but you never know. Um, maybe approach um, models who work for life drawing classes or something like that, because um, they're used to being naked in front of an audience. Um, and then something else that I always, always do for my art nude shoots is literally every shoot, all the images I take are shown to the model, um, whether that's at the back of the camera or I put them up online in a gallery that they can look through. And I always say to them, if there's an image here that you do not like and you wish me to delete so it's never seen ever, ever again, um, give the model that option. Um, I've never had a model actually ask me to delete an image, but it just gives that confidence to the person that you're photographing that you respect them. And I think that's probably the biggest key is the respect for the person that you're photographing because without them, you have nothing. The reason they didn't delete it or they didn't ask you to delete it is because you're a professional. ChrisWoodmanPhotography.com is where you can find his work. You can also find him on Instagram at Instagram.com slash ChrisWoodmanPhotography underscore photography and of course we'll leave a link in the description below of this podcast my best to you and your family and it's good talking to you chris and let's uh let's stay in touch yeah we'll do you take care thank you very much for having me on talk to you later take care cheers ladies and gentlemen chris woodman that does it for today's episode you can find us at f11pod.com. You can, of course, use the extension, the handle of F11 as well, F11pod, uh, on Instagram and uh, Twitter. And we're not on threads, sorry. But uh, thank each and every one of you for listening to today's episode. Chris was an awesome guest. It's really great to have people, especially portrait photographers, who do stuff that's far different from what Brandon and I do. And Chris is definitely that guy. So... Check out his work in the description below. And until next time, kids, chase light and not algorithms. Thank you for listening to today's episode. For more information about this podcast, go to www.f11pod.com.